It's Tuesday, December 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and things are good. The projections were off. The worst-case scenarios have not materialized. Which worst-case scenarios? Almost all the worst-case scenarios. Let's take Ebola. Ten people have been treated for Ebola in America. One came here in the very late stages of the disease. There was nothing to do to save him. Another, Thomas Duncan, died in Dallas. Everyone else is alive and well today. This was the biggest panic of the year. Worldwide, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report estimated that the future number of cases, if the trends continued, could be 550,000 by January 2015, or 1.4 million if corrections for underreporting are made. Now, in fact, the worldwide number of cases just reached 20,000. And you've probably been hearing that story and been hearing that it's a dire number, a horrific development, especially when you consider that 7,800 people have died. But it is far from the worst case scenario. Let's look at the Singapore Airlines crash. It is so sad. It reminds us of the Malaysian airliner that went missing, the other Malaysian airliner that was shot down in Ukraine. But you know what? There hasn't been a U.S. airline crash that killed more than 50 passengers in 13 years. Last year was literally the safest in aviation since 1945. It is a golden age for airline safety. The economy, yes, 5.8% unemployment. It's not great. Not perfect, but last year was 7.0, before that 7.8, before that 8.6, before that 9.8. That's called a trend. It is a positive trend. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe things don't feel like it, but the world is getting safer and more prosperous. Our neighbors are, statistically speaking, doing better. Our lives are collectively on the upswing. Shh, don't tell scary local news. I just saw them talking about apps that could be pre-programmed with viruses. Don't tell the grousers who are sure that we're going to hell in a handbasket. Is it true that we're approaching the promised land in a product clutch? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying 2014 was a good year. So quit your belly aching and possibly reconsider your subscription to Morbidity and Mortality Weekly. On the show today, I spiel about this very dead news period that we're in, and we consider how to translate that which is untranslatable. But first, the State Department employee tasked with emptying Gitmo has stepped down. I'll ask him why. We're coming up on the 13th anniversary of the first prisoners being taken to the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. At its height, Guantanamo Bay Gitmo housed around 700 prisoners. The count is down to 132. A week ago, President Obama told CNN he thinks that number should be zero. I'm going to be doing everything I can to close it. It is, uh, it is something that continues to inspire jihadists and extremists around the world, the fact that these folks are being held. Uh, It is contrary to our values, and it is wildly expensive. Uh, We're spending millions for each individual there. Up until a few days ago, Cliff Sloan was special envoy for Guantanamo closure at the U.S. State Department. He recently stepped down. Cliff is also a former publisher of Slate. He joins me now. Hello, Cliff. Hi, how are you? I'm well. So the title, Special Envoy for Guantanamo Closure, that pretty much lays out the goals of the job. But how did you go about doing that job? 
the first priority was to uh, move those who are approved for transfer. And this is a very, very important point because people uh, talk, throw around the term Guantanamo and there are, are very important differences in the population because there's a very significant uh, number of those who are approved for transfer, uh, 64 who are approved for transfer right now. And uh, that is a very, very important determination because what that means is that six departments and agencies said that this person is such a low risk, such a low threat, that the person should be transferred, uh, and it's in the national interest to move the person from Guantanamo. And they said that unanimously, and for most of them, they said that five years ago. And so the very first priority was, let's get moving with those who are approved for transfer. Uh, we set out to do that uh, as, as aggressively as we could. So why'd you quit? When I started, I told Secretary Kerry that I would be here for 12 to 18 months, and he agreed with that, and I stayed for the full 18 months to get as much done as I possibly could. And I am very pleased that I'm leaving at a time when we have achieved a very substantial amount of progress and where the path ahead to closure is very clear. So I leave feeling very good about what we've been able to accomplish and about the path ahead. Here's the first sentence of the New York Times covering your resignation. The State Department envoy who negotiates detainee transfers from the military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, is resigning, dealing another blow to President Obama's effort to close the facility. Do you agree with that. No, I completely disagree with it because, uh, as I say, the the my uh, departure is something that was uh, long planned, and uh, it, it's actually coming at a time when we've achieved substantial progress, and what's more, where we have a very clear path ahead for, for more progress. There are more transfers in the pipeline. You're going to see them very soon, and uh, and then uh, beyond that, the the. the progress ahead is very straightforward. Move all of those who are approved for transfer. Uh, continue to review those who are not approved for transfer to see who can now be approved and transferred. Get it down to as small a core as possible. And at that point, work on uh, transferring that small core that remains to the United States uh, for uh, detention and prosecution. Give me a realistic best case and then just a realistic prediction about what the state of Guantanamo will be uh, the day President Obama leaves office. I believe that the Guantanamo detention facility will be closed by the time President Obama leaves office. I think you're going to see accelerating momentum in terms of moving all of those approved for transfer. And I think at that point, the case for transferring a very small core to the United States in very secure facilities will be overwhelming. And so I absolutely believe that uh, Guantanamo is going to be closed during President Obama's presidency. And Cliff, is there anything that listeners, people who think and uh, are concerned with this issue should know that hasn't been pointed out yet that you'd like to say? It's very important to 
focus on the facts when uh, one is talking about Guantanamo. You hear all kinds of uh, sweeping statements, and uh, many of them simply are belied by the facts. You hear people saying that everybody at Guantanamo is X or Y, and that simply is not the case. There is a, a big difference in the population, for example, between those approved for transfer because of the very low threat and low risk, and those at the other end of the spectrum who are facing criminal charges and military commissions. So I think it is very important for people to focus on the actual facts and not simply run to the battle positions of, of rhetoric in, in talking about Guantanamo. Well, the most common battle position is just that, the argument that freed detainees return to violence. Um, is that true? If you look at those who went through the very intensive review process in 2009 that led to them being approved for transfer. It was a very, very rigorous, comprehensive process that required the unanimous determination of six departments and agencies. The number of those who have engaged in wrongdoing, who went through that process and have been transferred, is very small. Everybody would like for that number to be zero. But well above 90% of those who have been transferred who went through that process in 2009 not only are not confirmed of engaging in wrongdoing, they're not even suspected of engaging in wrongdoing. Because the director of national intelligence said or had a report that said 29% of the 614 detainees released from the prison had returned to violence. But are you saying the bulk of them was before this rigorous review process was instituted in 2009? Yes, and that's not even an accurate way of characterizing what the report is. And this is very important because you hear that 29% or people sometimes say 30% figure. And so let's unpack that a little. And this is what I mean about focusing on the facts. And it's very important to unpack that. So first of all, that combines confirmed and suspected. And there is a world of difference between those two categories. As one would think, the bar for suspected is very low. So if you take out suspected and you just focus on confirmed to begin with, it practically cuts that percentage in half. Second point that's very, very important is the point that you were just making, which is that it is very different when you look at the percentage and the figures for those who were transferred before that intensive review process in 2009 and those who went through that intensive review process. For those who went through that process, the number and the percentage is very, very low. And then a third point is that of those who are confirmed, a great number of them have been killed or captured, which illustrates a couple things. First of all, it illustrates that we and our allies keep a close eye on them. And secondly, it illustrates they're not out there actively engaged in in wrongdoing. Um, They've either been killed or captured. So I think with all of those points, they're very important when you hear that that figure of 29% that is thrown around. It really is not an illuminating figure. It's not a helpful figure. I think it is much more helpful to be Uh, much more precise about what the facts are. Cliff Sloan is the recently departed special envoy to Guantanamo closure from the U.S. State Department. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you. The Germans have a word for it. In fact, that 
phrase itself is an actual word in German. It's Deutsche Hatversefershik. Okay, I made that up. But words that are untranslatable are fascinating because they're mysteries to be unlocked, because they're keys to the character of people and speakers, and because they're ideas that remain forever a bit elusive. Well, now there is a dictionary of untranslatables. In fact, that's its name, Dictionary of Untranslatables. The best review I could give to this book is that the title is a total lie. <laughs> Adding to the meta-ness of this exercise is the fact that the editor of this book is Barbara Cassin, but she does not speak English. So I am speaking to one of the translators, Emily Apter, whose I believe name in French would be Plus Apte. Is that right? Like more apt? Plus apt. Plus apt. She's a professor of French and comparative literature at NYU. And she joins me now. Hello, Emily. Hello, how are you? All right. English does embrace some foreign words and phrases. Je ne sais quoi, schadenfreude. Yes. What would English benefit from the most? One of the things that always makes me laugh is that there's like this big word that's Dasein, right? In German, it means being there. And remember, we had that whole wonderful film with Peter Sellers called Being There. And it's really about the metaphysical state of this guy who doesn't say anything. He's just sort of thereness, right? And and people say, oh, that's just so profound. It's like getting a whiff of pure being, uh, which is something Americans are notoriously bad at. We don't really think about you know, subjectivity in the sort of suspended as as something palpable, right? We relate to this guy or that guy. Being there is, in a sense, a second-class term for the German Dasein. And there is no translation for Dasein. That's one of those terms that gets used over and over again in philosophical language. Uh, One of the great English translators, Jonathan Ray, says, the best translation for Dasein, capital D, is Dasein, (laughs) little d, Um, because it's really one of those tough ones. So let's talk about the uh, Worf-Sapir hypothesis. So this is linguistic relativity or the idea that uh, I guess, well, maybe you would define it better than I, but I understand it to mean the words we say uh, have an interaction with literally how we think. Yes. Uh, There's debate, huge amounts of debate on this, and people will point out, well, even in languages where there is no word for it, you can have that cognition. You just might use a different sentence, and people might use different sentences to express that. But do you think words actually shape mental processes? Yes, I think we actually... um, that there's an element of hearing and sometimes mishearing uh, that comes through translation. Let me give you an example. Thank you, yes. Um, so there's a wonderful French expression for that means to prosecute somebody legally. It's traduire en justice, right? So if you sound that word out as an English speaker, what you hear is translate injustice. And you start to think translating injustice in justice, and you're on a track where your mind is rethinking the word justice. But you know what? It has nothing to do with this technical legal term. Mm -hmm. A French person won't hear that. So I often, in my own work, sometimes start with what I'm mishearing in languages or what the, the word sound value makes me 
think about. And that's a very different approach. Yeah. I, I was thinking of another legal term, as you said that, no low contendere, I think yes. it is, right? No contest, which means you're just not pleading guilty to something, but because we have this phrase, well, it's no contest, it seems almost like, well, it's such a slam dunk case that I don't... Anyway, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, how about the classic phrase of the French Revolution, liberté, fraternité, mm. égalité? Liberté, fraternité, égalité. There you go. <laughs> Liberty and egalitarianism have meanings in America, so does fraternity, brotherhood, I guess, would be yeah. it. Subtleties that we're missing from the that the French would hear. Oh, absolutely! I think in the Anglo-American tradition, we think of liberty as freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom and liberty are not the same thing, obviously. Freedom in the American Anglo-American tradition that goes back to Locke is freedom of property in the person, of individualism. A French notion of liberté in relation to fraternity, it, it, it foregrounds. A common good, right? That there isn't just a freestanding individual in the propertyed sense of I am the owner of myself. That's the Lockean notion of property in one's person as the fundamental idea behind property, individualism, conscience. Mm-hmm. The French sense is quite different. The notion of liberty is uh, linked to. F- a kind of freedom to be part of a collective good. Yeah, so there's this guy, Clive Bundy, who was tied up to the word liberty, and people would say he's exercising his liberty, and what he was doing was sort of protesting the fact that he had to pay tax on government land. Oh, I think God, it was that, that guy, the yeah, racist. Right, yes. he was racist, he was definitely <laughs> anti-people. Oh, my um, God, I think yeah. it might have been more... It, I might be mistaken. It might not be tax on land. I think it was pay no, to have his cattle want... graze on the land. He, yes, that's yes, right. he, yes. He... Putting aside the notions of if this guy was racist, they would not think of that in terms of the concept of liberty, you're telling me. This has nothing to do with liberty because there's no egalitarianism involved. There's very little common good to what Clive Bundy was doing. It's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go too far with this. I think that uh, there's a long and strong tradition of individual ownership and uh, the protection of property rights in France, to the point where you know uh, there's a law that requires all inheritance to be divided equally among children. Right. You know. So in that sense, you can't just really put a child out of a will if you fought with them. But there again, maybe this does support what you're saying because it kicks in. The, obviously, something behind the French law says it's for the common good if uh, people, in a sense, have a kind of limit yeah. or constraint on how they divide their property. Yeah. Because, I, well, let's say an editorial writer wanted to defend Clive Bundy in American, in English. Maybe one of the first things he would say is, Look, you might not agree with him, but he's exercising his right. This is what we mean by liberty. It doesn't seem like liberté. It doesn't seem like what right, we mean by Right, but let's take the Second Amendment. Yeah. In a French context, you would turn it around. The debate would be around what about the rights of, of other citizens to be in a gun-free zone. Yeah, and this maybe has something to do with the headscarf laws in France, right? Yes, that's right? a can of worms. It is a can of worms, but, <laughs> you know, to, to explain it, yeah. in America, you're allowed to wear headscarves because of individual liberty, individual freedom of worship, but the, and there, since there's not this collective idea animating the idea of liberty, maybe that's one of the reasons why the French have a different interpretation of what is right and what is liberty than the Americans do. Right. They, there's a much greater act, 
emphasis on universal values and Frenchness as a kind of But is that tied up to words? Principle. Is that reflected in words? Well, this is a complicated issue because one of the major polemics of the dictionary was that we do not want to just encourage what in the fancy term was ontological nationalism, that is the way and a kind of being yeah. associated with a national identity. Yeah, the characters right? of the Russians are Russian this, the character. character. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> Which this, just comes this a half step away from stereotype. Does, yeah. In some of the entries, which are interesting entries, uh, controversial, the uh, American, so-called American, because some of us were English, uh, team that worked on the English edition, mm -hmm. we weren't totally enthusiastic about the individual entries in the dictionary on national languages mm -hmm. on French, Spanish, German, etc., because they kind of reinforce certain stereotypes about what it means to signify in a certain language. And these were some of the very caricatures or stereotypes that the the book tr tries to undermine, right? It doesn't want to support that view. And yet, it's very hard. It's extremely hard to say, well, saudade or uh, fado in Portuguese don't somehow conform to a certain tradition of melancholia or... A longing for what was. A longing was. for what was, a kind yes. of nostalgia. Yeah. Uh, how different is it from the Romanian term dor? Well, that's one thing the dictionary gets you to start to think about. Or shading into something else, spleen in English. Uh, very different, obviously, but there are these points of overlap with melancholia and, and sadness and bitterness. And so you start to get the this kind of almost a mapping, right, where you see certain individual differences in each nation or national culture, each a kind of mythology around certain terms and ideas, but then they are put into some sort of dynamic relation to their counterparts in other languages, and so you see that when the, the link between conscience and consciousness start to uh, get stronger or fray, as a result of who's translating what, who's the, these are some of the little backstories in this book, and it's 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 almost like reading a novel about words. Emily Apter, NYU professor, is a translator and an editor of the Dictionary of Untranslatables. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. No news is not news. Today it was reported that the NYPD is apparently orchestrating a slowdown so that arrests are down by two-thirds overall and things like traffic violations and low-level arrests are practically at zero. I, for one, will take advantage of this opportunity by changing lanes without using a blinker, thus justifying the thug life tattoo across my abdomen. But you know who else is undergoing a slowdown? The news media. And it does this Every year at this time, every year between Christmas and New Year's Day, we in the news media seem resentful of news. Yeah, a plane crash, you can't not cover that, but that's done out of duty. From page one of the New York Times today, even the copies of the Times they sell in Arizona, is this story about New York State Assemblyman Sheldon Silver engaged in nefarious business practices. Sheldon Silver engaged in dicey dealing. Stop the presses. No, literally, we were going to lead with the M79 bus is not very fast, but Sheldon Silver being investigated. Oh, this will hook him in Scottsdale. Not interested? Well, listen to the vivid description of Mr. Silver that fairly pops off the page. With his deep graveled monotone and laconic style, Mr. Silver has been an enduring and inscrutable player in Albany. 
enduring and inscrutable. The double whammy of unengaging. It's like a Janice-faced mask of blank expression. He's not giving you anything, but he's also not leaving. Which describes a sofa my mom's thinking of discarding. Oh, what a news day. In fact, what a news week. We load up on these year-end lists. The meme of the year. The communicable disease of the year. The tailor of the year. It's swift, not Dane, damn it. But we do it so we don't have to report new news, which is to say, news. Here's another big story. A story they're telling us is big right now. The Greek government might change. This will spell doom for Europe? Nope. A headache for at least the struggling economies of the Eurozone? Probably not. This will cause Greece to re-engrave the frosted glass on the doors of the Parliament building? Okay, that'll probably be true. And I've been reading many, many stories about the series of votes for the governing centrist coalition to hang on there. Because the media isn't interested in finding some other interesting news. I have to read about the governing centrist coalition. Which gives rise to this announcement. I will now announce that governing centrist coalition is the second most off-putting phrase of 2014. There is one other phrase which I have identified that makes me less interested in a story than governing centrist coalition. Soon I will tell you what that most boring of phrases is, but I want to clarify what the contest here is. This is not just any series of words that's uncompelling, right? Like if I saw in a headline or a story... Beige Honda Civic with Manitoba plates. Now that is boring, but it's not a trope. It's not showing up again and again in stories. I mean that this phrase that I'm going to say is so boring that I didn't even realize it was boring until I did some data analysis. There are some topics that I know that I am actively bored with, like water rights in the West. I will always skip that story, but it's important. Of course it's important. That's why it's boring. If there were a remote possibility that the West would go dry, then it wouldn't be the same story over and over again. There's one fact. We know the fact. They keep telling us the fact. If there was a story, volcanoes threaten Trenton, that would be compelling. You know why? Because volcanoes don't threaten Trenton. And you'd read it and you'd say, wow, I never heard of this before. Of course you didn't, because volcanoes don't threaten Trenton. But water rights in the West, that is a real thing. And the same thing, it hasn't changed since the first time I read through the entire story about water rights in the West with talk of aquifers and non-renewable groundwater supplies, and I don't know, Honda Civics. I don't know what's in there. I can't tell you. I've never made it past the third paragraph. But I do know that I have a water rights in the West allergy. But this phrase, this most boring phrase of the year, this is one I just discovered. I have unwittingly, but most definitely, been repulsed by this phrase in 2014. I don't think I've ever read a full story on it. I think I've done a story on it just on it, but I hate it. And here it is. Medical device manufacturers. Oh, they're important. Like I said, the boring stuff is always important. They're at the heart of some intersection of money and politics and healthcare and beige Honda Civics, but I couldn't care less. You could tell me the exact time and manner of my death and include useful information on how I could avoid this death, but if the preceding graph were about medical device manufacturers, I would not read it. And anyway, I've got to get to this Trenton Volcano news. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi takes her job title from the German word for producer of insightful daily podcast focusing on news, politics, and medical devices. It's just in fribulatra mix. 
Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, is best described by the Bulgarian word mecheski, which means given to marking his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers does for Slate Podcasts what the Koreans call jajagja, which means executive produce, but while rhythmically dancing. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. Please give us a review in iTunes. There's only two more days to give us a review and get your tax deduction. Download Yo! and subscribe to Podcasts and Yo! That'll tell you when the show is on. Or you can sign up for our notices at slate.com slash gist email. Facebook.com slash slate gist is a site that we use. It's on Facebook. It is Facebook. Email the gist at slate.com. As the Mongolians say, Sansgolin Akchar, which means thanks for listening. In Welch, it's Diolch Amrando. And in Brooklyn, it's next time don't interrupt. <laughs>